This week, we death gripped the seat after watching the sci-fi horror classic, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And along the way, we asked, how does San Francisco become the flashpoint of an alien invasion? How can Veronica Cartwright seem so scared all the time? And just how terrifying is this film? Watch out for the pods and shriek at your friends in this edition of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another horrifying pod overtaking edition of the Forest-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my ever-present co-host, <laughs> the pod man, Sean Michael Culp. Which, again, is appropriate this week as we discuss uh, 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Ooh. Yeah, this is a good one. Yeah, I was uh, I was glad when this came up in the list because this is another one of those movies that's uh, been on my personal one-to-watch list for a long time. Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Yeah, I've heard, no- heard nothing but good things about it. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I was excited to watch it. Horrified to watch it. Hor- yes, indeed horrified. My mom told me she saw this uh, in the 70s when she was in high school and said it was amazing. It's got that weirdo named Sutherland. <laughs> I was like, all right. I don't th- think he's that weird. He's- Lots of weirdos before they were weirdos in this movie. <laughs> yes. Is he weird? I mean, why do people say that? Uh, am I, I, am I, I missing think- out something? I I think he's done some really great roles, and then he's done like some totally wacky and goofy roles. Okay, mm-hmm. I just know him from Hunger Games and uh, JFK. Well, he was and now in, this. He was some creepy arsonist in Backdraft. Oh, never! I've heard of Backdraft. Yeah, because I tell you about it all the time, and yeah, you still haven't watched you keep it. Saying Backdraft, <laughs> is that a modern show or is that a? Uh... No, it's a movie. Oh. it's a movie by Ron Howard. Oh, really? Yeah. Ah. I've told you this. Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> oh, my God. Here it is. Okay. Maybe I'll watch Backdraft. There you go. <laughs> so, a quick breakdown of the plot. Though when an alien spore lands on Earth and begins creating pods to infect and copy humans, a group of friends must figure out how to save themselves and the world before they are taken over one by one. So, yeah, pretty simple plot. I mean, yeah. it's, it's A to B all the way. Oh, yeah. Which is always appreciated in a movie like this. You know, keep it simple, stupid. It's very simple. Stay in your lane. We come, we land, we eat you. Goodbye. Yeah. I, that's probably why these films, why is it always the simple films are always the best? Because that's how it is. <laughs> We're simple beings. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, this movie was directed by Philip Kaufman, who- uh, Philip Kaufman. Actually wrote- the uh the the western classic the outlaw Josie Wales oh have you seen that I have hey that's it that's it's a, a great good one. movie that's what it is also received a story credit on Raiders of the Lost Ark oh it actually continues to receive credits in the franchise really mm-hmm. I wonder what he did did he, did he make indie <laughs> I think he had, no George Lucas is credited as creating Indiana Jones but I think he helped develop more of the ancillary characters okay. Um, maybe Marion Ravenwood and a few others. Sure. Uh, also directed The Right Stuff. Oh, never seen it. Never yeah, heard of it. Yeah, about the early days of uh, space explora- uh, exploration. Do-do-do. What? With The Right Stuff? Yeah, I think uh, Sam Shepard was in that. That sounds like a film from like the 40s or 50s, like Breakfast at Tiffany's. But it's He's not... got The Right Stuff. I think it like, was early on. 70s, late 60s that came out. The Right Stuff? Yeah. <laughs> 
That's a funny title. Well, that's what they were. I look- don't mean to poop on it. Yes, just, you come are. On, though, come on, man, just come on with a title. Well, like- that's what they were looking for at the time. Was NASA call it? They want astronauts with quote the right stuff. Okay, I'll I'll take that. I mean, but come on, that's like Independence Day being called the right stuff. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it is. I don't it see. It sounds so off. Brand I don't see to your me. logic there. <laughs> or like uh, Space Jam being being called uh, Michael's secret stuff. Remember, because with the water bottle. Yeah, I I don't get your logic here. I totally get my logic. Anyway, <laughs> so Invasion of the Body Snatchers is starring Donald Sutherland as uh, Matthew Bennell, who prior to this starred in The Dirty Dozen, Kelly's Heroes, Mash, and Animal House. So already he's got a solid resume. Um, stars Brooke Adams as Elizabeth. This is one of her early film roles. Also starring Veronica Cartwright as Nancy. Mm-hmm. And she was well-known for Alien, but she starred in The Birds, the Alfred Hitchcock classic prior to this. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, she's definitely, like how you said, she's good at freaking out. Yeah. That's, that's where it's from, The <laughs> Birds, man. Well, Alfred Hitchcock just is notorious or was notorious for just terrorizing all the women he worked with. Really? Yeah, I don't have time to get into okay. just how awful Alfred Hitchcock was we, because there's so many stories. We can do like a special and just like talk about him one day. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and then who else? The great Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, I would consider this actually to be his first major film role. Yeah. Not only like so. a breakthrough role for him. I think on Vanity Fair, he says this is like his first one that mm-hmm. he ever. And he's actually Jeff Goldblum. He do, like he doesn't act like a caricature of himself. Yeah, he doesn't do any weird pauses or inflections no. or it's like, like this tempo and... with his lines. No, he doesn't. It's like this in the fly, where you like really get to see what made him the actor he once was. Yeah, and then uh, who else we got? The Leonard Nimoy. Outside of Star Trek. Yes, the late, great the late great. Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. This guy, it's great to see him act outside of just being Spock. Yeah, I did read that he was cast to intentionally break the um, the stigma that was surrounding him from Star Trek. I could see that because it's just, that series was just so phenomenal. <laughs> so many people mm-hmm. just, they saw him. It's kind of like Mark Hamill with Luke Skywalker. He just can't escape it. Yeah, he tried so hard to do different roles after Star Wars. I mean, really, and then he, and later in his career, he learned to just embrace that he is Luke Skywalker, and he also voices the Joker and did so for, like, almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. Whereas Nimoy just embraced Spock the rest of his life. Yeah, which, you know, he was banking on that cash cow up until his passing. Yeah, yeah. And that's not a criticism at all. We love Leonard Nimoy. no. I mean, Clint Eastwood's been Clint Eastwood for his whole entire career, yeah. so I don't blame you at all. But this also star, uh, I shouldn't say star, it features cameos from several actors who were in the 1958 original film. Okay. Uh, Kevin McCarthy makes an appearance. He's the uh, the running man who bumps into Matthew's car and starts yelling, they're coming, they're that's, coming. So that's the guy. That's from the, the guy. Film. That's crazy. And man. then he's, you know, just pummeled to death in the yeah. street. Yeah. <laughs> what a way. What a way to go. And uh, Don Siegel, the director of the original huh. film, makes a cameo as the cab driver near the end of this film. That's pretty cool that they threw him back in. Do you like that when other films do that? If it's not egregious, then yeah. I do like it. Like the the new Ghostbusters film I was just is, say. is yeah. guilty of this 1,000%. Oh, they even have a Harold Ramis statue. Mm-hmm. Like, And you can tell Bill Murray just hates... That he's in this movie, period. 
he does not want to be in this movie at all. And it, it, his look on his face is just like, God, get me out of this. <laughs> Either kill me or just prevent this movie from coming out ever. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't mind the paycheck, though. Yeah, and then Dan Aykroyd shows up in that movie. And it's like, oh, who yeah? cares at this point? Oh, yeah, yeah. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Yeah, the movie is so awful. Nobody cares about the, <laughs> the last two cameos of Ernie Hudson or Dan Aykroyd. Uh, and any other cameos in this film? Not that, that I could nope. find. Those are the only two? Yeah. So okay. it was made on a budget of $3.5 million. Wow. At the time, that's about 13 and a half and change in 2019 money. Oh, wow. So this was a low-budget film. Yeah. Even today's standard. Well, again, that's still that was still the case in 1970s Hollywood. You you got the budget you got. That yeah. was it. It was, it was those rare films that got more budget if it went over like mm-hmm. jaws and star wars were films that went over schedule and over budget yeah like those are the rare films if you were even close to going over schedule it was over your yeah your production was just closed and you were done maybe that's why there's so many films that just end and it doesn't feel like a good ending it could be i mean yeah it's just you were limited by your budget and your schedule it's just how it, how it went in the 70s well, Philip Kaufman had always been a fan of the 1958 original and wanted to provide his own take on it by shooting in San Francisco. It's his hometown. It's his favorite city. Mm-hmm. And definitely partnered with uh, the cinematographer, Michael Chapman, to pull off this uh, film noir look to it. Yeah. Like, you can definitely tell with some of the odd angles in the film and the, the transitions from light to dark. Oh, yeah. And this film is... Dark, and I don't mean dark in tone because it certainly is that. I mean dark. It's just like dark with little to no lighting. You mean like the scene where he's just driving his car after yeah. the rock cracks the window windshield, and it's just all black. It's just a weird shot. Yeah, and like why are you filming just blackness with the street? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's just darkness everywhere in the film. Yeah, it's it's. It was pretty peculiar, I have to say. The choices. We also even utilize color changes to show that people had transitioned into pots. Okay. And I think this is definitely more prominent with um, Jeffrey, Elizabeth's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. As in the beginning of the film, he's shown in a lot more like natural light. Mm-hmm. Then when he wakes up in as a pod, definitely see him in more, you know, like lampshades or mm-hmm. like just fluorescent lighting. So it's even, it, it's, it's a good trick to show that, to subtly show these people are now pods. You don't trust them. Oh, that's crazy. I like that. What a, what a good choice yeah, by the director. It's a lot of simple choices with the visual effects because the pods traveling, the spores at the beginning of the film, that was actually one of the simplest visual effects shots in the film. Okay. It was like this vat of material they bought at a craft store for something like $12. Mm-hmm. They actually shot the scene as they normally would, like they poured it out or whatever. And then for the film, they uh, edited it in reverse. So it looks like the spores are going out into space. It's so cool, man. I miss those when movies did film tricks like that as opposed by, I guess, special effects are cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Because were you saying that that was one of the cheapest effects that they did? Yeah. It was really like, how much? Cheapest what? and simplest. I, I read it was like $12 to buy the, that material. That's amazing. <laughs> and all you have to do is film reverse. Well, they were racking their brains as to how to pull that off. And it's often the simplest tricks that... Mm-hmm are used for the greatest effect. I mean, even in Jurassic Park, when they're trying to show the the stomping of the T-Rex, yeah. they were trying for weeks to figure that out. And then one of the sound designers 
put a glass of water on a bass amp and started plucking the strings. Yeah. So that's how they, they ran a bait like a, a guitar amp line uh-huh. under the cars and just plucked it. So it made that no made that effect. See the little tricks of the trade, man. Mm-hmm. That's where you get these like life shattering effects that stand the test of time. Yeah. Not to say that this probably stands the test of time. <laughs> But you know, you know what I mean. I think, a, yeah, a lot of it stems from I think Kaufman's encouragement for the actors and mm-hmm. behind the scenes crew to promote creativity. Yeah, as he actually suggested, the actors also play with facial expressions mm-hmm. prior to the pods taking over. Like we see Elizabeth do that creepy thing with her eyes. Yeah, where she like moves them in yeah. circles. Yeah, Matthew smiles a lot. Jack is just high-strung and angry all the time. So you you definitely see this this hard transition with some of the main characters from human to pod. Yeah. Very interesting director choices that you wouldn't see in a regular film nowadays. Yeah. Like, uh, what director would take five minutes just to watch Donald Sutherland cook, like, saute a bunch of stir-fry? Maybe the Coen brothers? Yeah, right? That's it. Like, there's literally a scene where he's just... St- and dark lighting, too, where it's just like, what? He just propped up a camera right on the side of him and just started watching him cook. Did that food look good, though, to you? If I knew what he was making, maybe. <laughs> Some type of Asian cuisine. Uh, probably that's what it was, because it is San Francisco in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a, probably a Chinese food store at like, yeah. every corner. Those are probably like the Starbucks of the late 70s. Yeah, it was pretty heavy with the Chinese food. Imagine if there was only one golden dragon restaurant and it was franchised imagine how much money those owners would have made in the 70s because there are there's so many different golden dragon restaurants i know and they're all they're like they're not under the same chain oh that's crazy no it's just (laughs) so someone didn't trademark the name no they missed the boat on that one it's too late now yeah it's way late there's too many it's crazy odds are you know where the golden dragon is in your town yes oh yes i know a couple that's crazy man i never thought of that well let's get this out of the way first this is a remake of a 1958 film of the same name yes and that was based on a 1955 novel by uh, i believe the name was jack finney Mm -hmm. sounds about right what a fun name (laughs) yeah they and they say this is a really good remake yeah there's been four feature-length motion pictures based off this book yeah so there was the 1958 version which is still lauded as a classic Mm -hmm. um that's been more viewed as like a an allegory for mccarthyism and the red Mm -hmm. scare during the time or the criticism on a feeling of a lack of autonomy in a communist system mm-hmm. i mean either way it's just a critique of the red scare of the 50s and 60s okay and then there we get this remake 1978 mm-hmm. and we get a, another remake 15 years later in 1993 yeah. that's just titled the body snatchers um that took place on an army base but that wasn't a great success and no. ended on a similar note to this film oh and then the 2007 remake was just simply titled The Invasion. And that one was with uh, Kidman and Craig. Yes. Daniel Craig. Uh, but that took a more simplistic approach to the alien spores. There were no pods. There's no. How can you do the body snatchers without pods? Well, by not calling it the body snatchers, by just calling it The Invasion. By doing that, you eliminate what is easily the, the most terrifying part of this film. Yeah. By not having the pods. But without the pods and it's just like the spores, then you're pretty, you're getting close to the happening. 
You're getting really close. You're getting pretty to close that. to almost a film like Outbreak. Yeah. Where it's a virus and it's not it's no persistent threat of an alien. You don't feel like it's an alien. You mm-hmm. feel like it's just a virus. It's going around infecting people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really make sense. But think about how terrifying that is. You see this thing that almost looks like it's naturally occurring in nature mm-hmm. that's now in your bedroom and taking you over and replicating you during your most vulnerable part of your day when you're trying to sleep and relax. What That's like the go-to. Like that species, they know when to hit you. That's like the, uh, what, what would you call that? That's like the patent of takeover, man, invasion. I don't know if it's a move Patton would do because oh, yeah. he was definitely like rah, rah, charge, use the tanks and break the line kind Not, of deal. But any type of war general that makes some brilliant type of strategy, I would say that's right in there, man. Go when they sleep. Well, I definitely thought that the pods were adaptive to their environment. Because when they land on Earth, they initially land on that leaf in mm-hmm. the beginning of the film, and then there's that that great shot of it like expanding and growing mm-hmm. and taking on a form like it's like something that almost looks like it could be found in nature. Yeah. And Elizabeth, the, the, the poor girl, picks up the pot and brings it home and, and kills her boyfriend. <laughs> you foolish, foolish person. I wouldn't call her foolish. I mean, she didn't know. She didn't know. I mean, if if aliens were going to invade, I would say this is the way to do it. Just oh, count yeah. on just count on humans to be stupid. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> you want to go after us? Ninety I mean, percent chance. You want to go after us? I mean, like infect Big Macs or something. Yeah. Well, that's exactly. You it, will but... conquer America in like a day. <laughs> just go after McDonald's and put it in the hash browns. Don't say that, man. That's what a lot of conspiracy theorists believe. Well, let them believe it. Oh, I I believe it. (laughs) McDonald's is guilty of it just (laughs) as anybody else is. What do they they call those? Chemtrails? It's the chemtrails, man. Chemtrails aren't a thing. (laughs) What? You don't believe in the chemtrails? No, I don't believe in that. (laughs) That would be the way. I want to ask you this, though. Why do you think the Body Snatchers has been remade so many times? I mean, I get the, the original 1958 version, and I understand this one. In 1978, I don't get the 1993 or the 2007 remake. I just don't. I'm trying to rack my brain. It's not like these films made copious amounts of money for all all regards. And it's not like it's a film that you'd think be like, yeah, we got to see this again. You know, it's not like we needed a reimagine, a reimagining. I feel like there wasn't enough time elapsed between the 1978 version to the 1993 one for it to feel to mm-hmm. feel the impact of it. I feel like if you are going to do a remake, you have to wait at least mm-hmm. beyond 15 years to do it. This isn't a Spider-Man film, all right? You no. can't do it. <laughs> well, then in 2007, there was only a 14-year gap. Yeah. So for all Hollywood knows, there's still somebody out there who appreciates the 1993 Body Snatchers and then sees 2007's The Invasion mm-hmm. and just hates that film. Mm-hmm. Because it ruined everything they love about the first one. Sadly, for the people born in the 30s, they've seen four of the same films come out in their lifetime. Well, we're seeing it now with yeah. Disney remaking everything. I know. It's nuts. I didn't know that there would be this many remakes for one film. Yeah, so I like Hollywood, please take note. You got to cool it on the remake culture. You're, you just have to. Yeah, just create something new, man. Or if you're going to reimagine it, reimagine it in a brilliant way. Do a fresh take on it. Don't just do the same crap everybody's been doing. Yeah. Or better yet, I mean, invest money in finding 
original scripts and developing those. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because A24 Studio is just beating you guys to that punch and actually creating original films. Mm-hmm. So deal with it. <laughs> Hot take by Chris Rupp. <laughs> but as we mentioned earlier, this film does have a pretty good cast in it. Mm-hmm. Like Nimoy does a great job of not acting like Spock. Yeah. Jeff Goldblum doesn't act like Jeff Goldblum. Donald Sutherland doesn't do his typical weird performance, and he does. I mean, granted, he's still like just like whispers. He whispers, but he makes a lot of great choices as an actor in this film. He does. I love uh, the the hesitation when he sees his duplicate pod. So he falls asleep outside, and there's this pod that they just start creepily coming out, you know, of the woodwork, and they latch onto his hand, and then he realizes I'm being duplicated because um. The female, Brooke Adams, she runs out and screams at him, right? And so he wakes up and he has to decide to kill the, his own duplicate. And he does a nice hesitation. That duplicating process is nothing short of horrifying. Gnarly, dude. My jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe it when I saw him. I'm like, this is disgusting, disturbing. Yeah, when... All the Ds. When Nancy finds the, um, the replicated um, pod in the bathhouse, I... Mm-hmm. She opens the curtains. I did a whole, like, holy crap moment yeah. there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, what is this going on? And then it disappears. It does. It does, because the pods decompose, and they just turn into- Oh, it's the humans who decompose. Or, or the humans decompose. Sorry, once the pod successfully replicates and duplicates them. That's symbolic of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Most notably, I think it's the soul. The soul. That's now being left over. Well, yeah, because once the pod duplicates you, it basically takes all the organic material, but there's no like heart, there's no empathy, there's no emotion. Yeah, it's all, it's literally the emotions are all dust that are just going to get thrown into the back of the garbage truck. Yeah, literally. Which, do. admittedly, I did not know that that's what they were doing. At the because beginning. the first scene, it was the first time you, we see it's Jeffrey who's, you know, taking out the trash. Mm-hmm. And then we see it again and then again, and then I was like, wait a minute. I knew when he did that because it's just the way he acted. I'm like, this isn't the same guy. He had to have been taken over. And then I was like, no way. Is that like the remaining of his, like the body remnants? And sure enough, <laughs> it's like gnarly. Yeah, dude. that was freaky. Can't believe you could just like throw it away. But these these guys have no heart. And I I have to say this too. I mean, for the time that this film came out, mm-hmm. I was impressed with the special effects. Yeah. Uh, me too. The only time it really kind of took me out of the film was when that dog came running up to them yeah. and it had the man face on it. Yeah, I did a double take. Yeah, it was one of those like, what the hell moments. I know, it it blew my mind. Like, what was the purpose of that dog? Well, I think that was, I think that happened because Matthew saw that pod that was next to the homeless man and his dog. And, and he remember, he crushed that pod as they were walking into the health department. Oh. So I think the pod like like had one of those blue screen type errors where it just didn't know what to do. So it just decided to copy both man and dog. Oh, my God. And then, yeah, merge them. I mean, at least that's what I think how it happened. I You know, I'd buy that or something. Or they just wanted a crazy weird scare because that dog got me. That dog freaked me out. I was like, that's messed up. Yeah. Yeah. It's clearly an effect from like Star Trek or something because- in a lot of early episodes of Star Trek, they they just like took dogs from the nearby shelters, put makeup on them, and passed them off as creatures. Oh my god, <laughs> really? I am not kidding you. In like one of the first, I think like one of the first five episodes of Star Trek, 
that's an effect they have. They take like a Pomeranian or something and they just like put paint on him and it's like, oh, look at this creature. That is hilarious. Uh, but the dog, though, it, it worked well with the birthing process because the dog to me was just as disturbing as seeing these humans just almost like squared out of these pods like a burrito, you know? Like if you squeeze the burrito too tight and all the stuff comes flying out. They come flying out and then apparently they come out like naked as a jaybird. Oh, yeah. Totally naked, squealing like pigs. Oh, it's disgusting. That's only when like, hey, that's like their alarm system is those god-awful shrieks. Those were terrifying. Mm-hmm. I would not know what would what I would do. That That's like stuff for your nightmares, man. Well, the, I think the sound design in this film definitely helps amplify the mm-hmm. terror that's ever-present. Oh, yeah. Because in the beginning, we hear all of these natural, lush nature sounds. We hear mm-hmm. birds, we hear dogs, we hear insects. Mm-hmm. And then as the film goes on and the pods start to take over San Francisco... We get less of those. Yeah. Until eventually at the end, there's no more. It's replaced by cars, industrial noises, and we can hear dock sounds, car horns, all that stuff. I mean, even when Matthew is walking in that square, there's no leaves on those trees. It's like nature is now totally dead after the pods have taken over. They dipped out, man. (laughs) See, nature knows. I mean, there's a lot of symbolism in the film that I did enjoy. If you look closely in the beginning of the film, you actually see uh, Robert Duvall in uh yeah in the in the in the priest outfit yeah he's... I for, I forget what it's called <laughs> yeah yeah the priest... he's just silently swinging all creepily on the swings I know it was so it wasn't out of place but it kind of like made you wonder why the heck there's a priest there watching a bunch of kids especially with now what we know <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> like what is going on but he's staring off almost like he's staring off into the bushes like he can see what's happening yeah like he knows what's going to occur and ultimately and this is not a you know a, me taking a stance on i hate religion kind of thing but <laughs> i mean religion and faith is ultimately a human construct okay and i took that as robert duvall seeing it in his priest get up and mm-hmm not doing anything is almost kind of like saying the the human constructs in your life are about to fail you and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Everything you know is just gone. Yeah. There's this otherworldly, unknown, unfeeling, unrelenting Mm -hmm. thing that's going to take over the world and you can't stop it. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. That's gnarly. Well, and then that intersects at the the timeline when the film takes place in the late 70s. Yep. With all the just horrors that was going on in the United States back then. Well, the 1970s were just this seismic shift in in American culture mm-hmm. because distrust in the government was at a all-time low. After uh, Watergate, right? Yeah, Watergate, and then we don't need to get into that. We yeah. all know what happened there. Yeah, Nam, all that stuff was going on. There was a big uh, recession that went on mm-hmm. where gas was just like astronomical prices. Yeah, violent crime was yeah. at a a level never ever seen or probably will be reached ever again. I mean, Mm -hmm. you think things are bad now. I mean, just read up on some crime rates from the 1970s. I mean, New York was practically a war zone. Yeah. Or just ask someone that's kind of old looking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What were things like in your day? (laughs) Oh, the stories my dad tells me. It's nuts. But it's true. I mean, there's just so much uh, interesting tension going on that I couldn't even imagine. 
Well, even in 1970s San Francisco, mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that this film showcases bathhouses yeah. is insane because now they're just called spas. Now they're spas. That's right. Where you can just relax in piles of mud. Yeah. If you're big, hairy, and sweaty. <laughs> no worries. Well, we all, we're seeing the rise of unconventional mental health techniques, yeah. like the head shrinks that uh, I'm pretty sure Jeff Goldblum plays one along with Leonard Nimoy. I just I didn't get Jeff Goldblum's character in this film. I wasn't sure if he was I wasn't sure if he was a colleague of Dr. Kibner or if he was a like a rival. I took him as a rival because okay. I think several times he's he talked about how much he hated him. Well, why is like he it. hanging out at his book release then if he's a, if he's know. that much of a rival? Maybe he's like a protester, like this guy's full of crap. If he was like a protester, him. he wouldn't be let into the party. I took it as they did not like each I other. I didn't get his purpose, like, but I don't think we're supposed to as an audience. I think we're no. just supposed to see that he's... He doesn't like him, doesn't trust him. Yeah. And he runs a bathhouse that his wife pretty much manages <laughs> without him. Yeah. I think all we're supposed to take from him is that he's a resentful, jealous individual. Yes. And you basically see that. Yeah. The only redeeming quality is that he decides not to be a douche at the end and just runs off to distract the pod. I mean, ultimately, the only person who seems like this, like a good moral character is Nancy. Yeah. Because Matthew is carrying a torch for Elizabeth, Mm -hmm. even though she's clearly with Jeffrey. Yeah. And Elizabeth, like, is, I almost want to say, like, she's derelict in her work duties. Yeah. Because she passes off the pod to somebody else to analyze. Yeah. Like, well, aren't you capable of doing this, too? Like, go ahead. So for her analyzing the pod... I took that as she wanted to, but the guy that was that was like kind of trying to convince her not to do it. Like he he was already changed and one of them and he knew that it was a pod, but he didn't want to do it because obviously he didn't want her to find out that aliens, man. Yeah, but after she's taken over by the pod, we see her at work in full lab gear and actually doing her job. Yeah. Like so do you think like those people who had their their faults and taken over by the pods were they made better? By the pods? I think so. I think they're more efficient beings because they definitely like took over San Francisco. I mean, they're more efficient, but I mean, they're lacking any empathy or feeling or just emotion in general. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm saying if your New Year's resolution was to lose 30 pounds and you lost the urge to whatever vice you have in your life, like for me, eat fast food and I could just go to the gym every single day, I'd be efficient. Fair enough. Like these pods, man. They t- they just take away any... I felt like they took away any of the urges that normal people like fight every day. But I, I did not understand what the end game was for the pods. And this is Survival, another... Survival, maybe. Well, that's not an end game. That's a... Well, for any species, that's the prime directive. Yeah. Well, it's just survival of the fittest, man. They came. They took over because they were superior. I don't know about superior. They're just more devious. Yes. And <laughs> devious they're... doesn't equal superiority. Well, if you get what you wanted, I think that's pretty superior. You you take the crown on that. Little column A, little column B. <laughs> uh, how did you like the uh, characterization of like uh, Donald Sutherland's character, like the development of him and all the conflicts between like the doctor, like Nimoy's character and all that. Well, he definitely had the most complete arc of any of the characters because uh-huh. he maintains who he is throughout the film, despite yeah. the crush he has on Elizabeth. He's tr- Throughout the film, he tries to do the right thing. Yeah, he's very moral and ethical as a human being. He wants the best for everyone. 
like he's the one that uh, recommends her to see Nimoy's character and like keeps saying, no, 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 don't look at him as like a quack or like some weird guy. Yeah, and turns out Nimoy is like the, the squad leader of yeah. his his group of pods. <laughs> he is the cult leader. Yeah, he does have, uh, he tries the whole time uh, yeah. up until the end. Well, I mean, eventually him and Elizabeth declare their love for each other, but it's only, mm-hmm. I mean- it's only after she realizes that Jeff, her Jeffrey is gone. Yeah. Like, Pa Jeffrey is no longer hers and probably won't be with her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and the soon after this, she she falls asleep, turns to dust, and arises naked as a jaybird in a pod. I know, dude. That, that scene where he just grabs her body and then she just... Poof. You know, Elizabeth is my red shirt of the film. Yeah. Not because her death was meaningless but because it was for me 100 percent not expected yeah i full-on expected to see us get matthew transform into a pod Mm -hmm. i expected us to see that Mm -hmm. and not her like i thought for sure she was gonna wake up when matthew was like trying to shake her awake yeah and then all of a sudden you hear like these these crispy sounds and her shriveling and then she just falls right out of his arms and then arises new as a pod but third time's a charm with making her a pod. Yeah, well, that's just it. <laughs> they were chasing her the whole film, man. They finally got her. But then that leads right into the ending of the film where Matthew is, I think he did everything he did in the film for Elizabeth. Yeah. And now now that she was gone, he goes into a warehouse, lights it on fire, like and burns down the warehouse full of pods. He tries. He tries. It's too little too late. <laughs> he saw like all the trucks that were full of pods. Mm-hmm. He saw the cargo ships that were being loaded full of pods. I mean, what does he really think that burning down this warehouse is going to do? All it's going to do is make him feel better. It's not going to stop this. He's fighting till the end, Chris. Trying to, but then he's... Don't give up. But then we get that awesome twist ending. Oh, the twist. So this is the twist ending M. Night Shyamalan should aspire to make. <laughs> Maybe this is where he got his inspiration from. Well, this has now become a meme in today's culture of Donald Sutherland, you know, mouth agape and pointing at people. Wait, this is people. a meme? This is a meme now. <laughs> no way. Which is, a, a, to me, it's horrible because people don't know where it comes from. Ah, I've never seen, yeah, the twist. Um, and actually, I don't think Sutherland, he didn't know about this until right before the scene, the night before shooting it. And neither did Veronica Cartwright. No, she didn't know until he's pointed and shrieked at her. Well, she is known for playing like these terrified performances. Yeah. Because she starred in Aliens, and in the scene where the chestburster arrives, mm-hmm. Ridley Scott didn't tell anybody like what was happening. Like All they knew was that something was going to happen. And it wasn't to the extent that he mentioned. Like, there was blood and viscera effects shooting all over the room. And there's a very prominent shot of it getting all over Veronica Cartwright's face. Like, you see her full-on freak out, and it doesn't look like she's acting. <laughs> she's and I read real. that, I, I'm probably wrong about this, but I actually read that she passed out after that squirted on her face. <laughs> you know, I don't blame her. So I don't know if she's just that great of an actress or if she's just that high strung. <laughs> but it's a good performance either way. I mean, yeah. How would you feel if someone just bleh, exploded right in front of you? Well, how would you feel if one of your best friends is all of a sudden one of these alien pods that you've been trying your darnness to prevent the entire day? Yeah. And then he just turns and streaks at you. And they played that off so well. 
Well, that shriek has to remain one of the great movie sounds that have ever been created. Oh, it it gave me the chills. I had like the chills running up my spine. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, yes, this is horror. This is good horror, not jump scare horror. This is stuff that like sits with you and really just terrifies you. Well, the key is it's not overused no. at all. I think there's maybe three or four times in the film where it's used, period. Mm-hmm. And it, I, Ben Burt actually designed the sound on this film. And the year prior to this, he did Star Wars. Oh, wow. So he, yeah, Ben Burt, again, just cements his legendary status in the film industry. And I think this is the... The third film where we've had Ben Burt prominently <laughs> featured. If you want good sci-fi uh, noises, call Ben Burt. I mean, Wally, uh, yep. The Phantom Menace. Now he's done this film. I mean, like mm-hmm. Ben Burt, if you are listening again, sir, we love and appreciate your work. <laughs> I mean, what did you think that sound was made of? I mean, the only thing I saw was like was pig squeals. Pig squeals, definitely pig squeals. That's what I heard. It, it's perfect sound. There's nothing more like I think to me disarming or like gut wrenching than a um, pig squeal. It it attacks your ears. It's uncomfortable to hear, in a sense, because pigs squeal in delight and in fear. It's just so terrifying. Yeah. It's I mean, uncomfortable. I mean, if you want to know where bacon comes from, I mean, it's Ugh. not a fun process. No, it is not. But it's so, so tasty. Oh, man. But this whole, like, having hordes of people chasing after you with that noise, I mean, I'd just be absolutely terrified. Yeah. He did a really good job. You can really see in this film, like, the first half of it is built up, just fleshing out these characters and figuring out what the hell is happening. And then that second half, it just, like, snowballs. Like, once it starts going, it goes. There's really no, like, slow, slow, slow buildup, I felt like. No. It's like, it was kind of like, um, darn, what was that film that we talked about? Oh, Westworld, where it's just, like, once the aliens or the robots, you know, the virus gets in, it just, boom, baby, everyone. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, did you have anything for a lens flare, Sean? A lens flare for me? Nothing bothered me too much with this film, I don't think. Well, something bothered me. I was bothered by Nancy, and not Nancy herself. Okay. Nancy was being forced to give a full-body massage to one of the hairiest, fattest individuals yeah. that I've ever seen on a movie screen. You know, yeah, I agree. I mean, isn't it enough to show that she works in this this dirty bathhouse? I mean, do we really need to see just how gross this is? I mean, and she's clearly, like, not enjoying it. And this dude thinks he's going to get something more than what it actually is. I know. I was worried that, I was like, what is this film? And he just seems like such a jerk the entire time. And she's literally just, you just see his fat, fat rolls just, like, Picking it up. It's like I can hear your fat. Ah, oh, it was so uncomfortable to watch. I just kept staring like, ah, no. Well, to make it worse, like you don't see Jack having to put up with this sort of crap. No, I feel like he makes his wife do all the work. And he even flat out refuses to help somebody in his bathhouse. I mean, and last time I checked, his name's on that front door. I know. He definitely, Jack did not seem like the nicest of people. No, he's just angry and resentful and is disappointed with his station in life. Yeah. And it's going to, you know. Take it out. And it seems like Nancy is the poor individual he takes it out on. I know. And she was so sweet the entire film. And she ends up surviving. Yeah. Bless her little heart. She unfortunately survives and all of her friends are gone. (sighs) What about toxic fandom, Sean? Did you see anything? Other than my own, like, loathing for (laughs) them remaking this film so many times when it doesn't need to be. I had one. All right. Throw it at me. (laughs) So... 
Just before rescuing the sleeping Elizabeth, Matthew is hiding in the slightly open bedroom closet. His face, not even quite outside of the closet, is clearly illuminated from directly below. Yet when he emerges into the room, the only light source anywhere around is a bedside lamp that couldn't possibly have cast light on his face in that manner. This is clearly somebody who doesn't know what film noir looks like. Kaufman and Chapman are trying to pull off the horror look. Yeah! Like, you can't create that by just having him hide in the closet with no light. It's a dark closet. How can you go through so much of the film with these weird shots and artistic, like, vision, and then that one scene triggers you? Like, what did they do? Turn on a light and test it out themselves? Like, see? See? This is some lighting pedant who's watching the film, yeah. glasses down, like, on the bridge of his nose, and then just... Pushes them all the way up and is like, well, I have to get out my computer now. I have to let the internet know that this film is wrong. <laughs> I'm surprised no one said anything about the solar wind carrying the pods. Actually, the solar wind wouldn't be able to carry the pods because it wouldn't break through the atmosphere. I have no response to that, only because you like just found out what solar winds were like <laughs> 10 minutes before we started recording. Yeah, it was kind of blew my mind. <laughs> I didn't think there was wind in space. Well, now you know. Now I know. So let's discuss the legacy of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. All right. So my box office success for the time grossed mm -hmm. over to $24.5 million during its run. Yeah. Um, the film was universally acclaimed at the time of release, but there were no nominations for any major awards that I found, and I found that to be shocking. It is shocking, but at the same token, a lot of remakes never do yeah. get any, which is which I, I don't personally enjoy. I think a remake is a movie of itself. And even if it was remade, if it's done better than the original, they all should deserve a chance. I thought this should have at least been nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. I mean, because oh, yeah. that's an easy give to somebody. Like If it's a remake or if it's based originally off a book, that's an easy give to give to somebody if it is a great film. Mm-hmm. And this is. This is an excellent remake. Yeah, this one is of the best. One I think. of the best of all time. Yeah, they hail it. Yeah. Well, the original has been, um, what, the Congress like sealed it up, made the digital copy. But I don't think they'd do that for this one. I don't know if they will. I mean, yeah. time will tell. There's still a lot of time left for this movie. I think it eventually will get selected for preservation. You um, think so? Yeah. All right. Whole, take this for what you will. It holds a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I feel this to be an accurate rating, given yes. that The Matrix is only at like an 88%. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of mind-boggling. Yeah. yeah. Like we mentioned earlier in the show, two more remakes would eventually come out after this film. And they've gotten worse and worse ratings. It's like, it's hard to go up, like surpass. Well, a third... <laughs> is currently in development. Oh, Jesus. With the script being written by, this is going to be a long name, by David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick. Well. Who's known for writing The Conjuring 2 and Aquaman. Please, no. I mean, it is the right time, right? Because they did this one, the third one 15 years after, then 14 years after, so come 2020, baby. Yeah, this might just be one of those films that's just in a perpetual remake cycle that will never break out of. It'll never be done. <laughs> it's forever in a time. Yeah. Well, Donald Sutherland and Jeff Goldblum have uh, gone on to have legendary careers in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Veronica Cartwright still remains a great actress. Mm -hmm. And Brooke Adams is still working in television and Broadway. And I uh, didn't know this. She's married to Tony Shalhoub. 
Tony Shaloub. Previous subject of the film Galaxy Quest. Yeah. Shaloub. So, what a fun name. So everything just comes back around in the show. <laughs> Especially in the sci-fi world. Yeah. So, Sean, with mm-hmm. all of that in mind, what do you say we give our rating? Mm-hmm. So of our scale on the Force Fed sci-fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, it would host a viewing party. Mm-hmm. What do you give to 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Uh, I'd host a viewing party for this. I'd say bring your pods. I think this is a great film. Solid. Every 95% rating is exactly what it's worth. I enjoyed every minute of it. I really don't think I had any criticism in it. Yeah. The whole thing. This is a great depiction of storytelling, character development, and horror. Yeah. Love the 70s, man. Keep them coming. You know, I think for me, this has to straddle two of our ratings. Okay. So I would happily add this to my collection. I would own this hardcore. Mm-hmm. And I'm with you. I would also host a viewing party. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a great film. Yeah. And and I was on the edge of my seat throughout the entire runtime. And everything about this movie deserves to be lauded. Yeah. I'd be happy watching it on my own, but I'm weird like this. And I really only want to watch like horror movies like during Halloween. Okay. Or if if I'm just listening on a string of murder podcasts and I'm like, you know what? I feel like watching <laughs> Silence of the Lambs right now. What? <laughs> I'm feeling murderous. Yeah. Oh, or God. I would put this on at a Halloween party and lo- this would legitimately <laughs> scare the pants out of people who have never seen this. Just put the pig squeals in yeah. the background. <laughs> <laughs> that like, would be what? the music for the party. Oh, God. <laughs> Not going to your Halloween party. Uh, but this is definitely a slow burn of a film. Yeah. And it, it doesn't is. truly heat up until around 40 minutes in, and it doesn't let up. No. And as we've said before, this is truly a great film, a classic, and it's definitely one of the best remakes that have ever been made. So cool. bravo to the cast and crew of this film about 41 years later. It, it still holds up. It yeah. made a great film that stands the test of time. At least on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, we think so. Take it what you will. <laughs> so, what do you say we pick our movie for next time, Sean? It's time to call that baby. Major <laughs> Samantha. We hollering at you. So, from our list of 118 films, our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha has selected... <laughs> <laughs> That's a new one. <laughs> he has selected number nine. This is a film from 1999 directed by the Wachowskis and starring Keanu Reeves. It is The Matrix. Oh, yeah. You just referenced The Matrix. (laughs) I'm excited to watch this one and get into that. I'm down. This is exciting. Yes. So that'll be our film for next time. Please watch with us and enjoy. And if you enjoyed today's show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find podcasts. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, ForceFedSciFi.com for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Force-Fed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time.
Force-fed sci-fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.